Hello, this is Gail Cutler uh, from Rebecca's Dream and DBSA, and I have the great privilege today uh, to be interviewing Christopher Lucas, lovingly called Kit. If that is all right with you, may I call you Kit? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I would like to give our listening audience just a brief review of who you are. Uh, actually, I could go on and on for days uh, talking about who you are, Kit. I am going to be reading the dust jacket on this incredible, incredible book that you have written called Blue Jeans, G-E-N-E-S, Blue Jeans. And the dust jacket said, says, Christopher Lucas has worked as a writer, producer, director in public and commercial television and won Emmy Awards for his programs. He is the author and co-author of five books. Lucas has two grown daughters and lives near New York City where he's continuing to make films, write books, and work as a film and stage actor. Anything there you'd like to add to or refute? No, I'd just like to know who that guy is. <laughs> well, he's very handsome. I'm looking at his photograph right now, and he is indeed quite a terrific person. And so again, thank you, Kit, for, for being with us and for helping me uh, personally and for helping all of those who will be listening in on this podcast. So I'm going to do something a little unusual. I am going to quote from the very last paragraph and the very last page of this phenomenal book. And the quote is, My mother, my father, my uncle, my aunts, my grandmothers, and my brother are all dead. But I am alive. Uh, please, Kit, would you take it from there? They are gone. You are alive. How is that? How did that come to pass that you are still here to tell this story? I have, I've been asked that uh, several times, um, and especially by people who have not gone through the experience of having a family suicide. Um, and finally, I think in this book, I, I really was able to think it through because I had to ask, the other questions first, which were, how come all the others are dead? And as I went through and looked at each one of them, I was pretty much able to get a reason why uh, they were dead. My father uh, was an alcoholic, and he knew he was an alcoholic, but he had lost his um, wife uh, early on in the marriage, my mother, and that just seemed more reason to keep drinking. So he, he drank himself to death, and in that sense, one understands. Uh, I, I don't know why he was an alcoholic, but I assume there was some predisposition from his genes. Um, he didn't start drinking when my mother killed herself, but he kept on drinking. So there's one. My mother was bipolar, and while there are often many reasons why someone um, not only can be bipolar, but is bipolar, that is, when the trigger happens, um, it is pretty clear that there were uh, genetic reasons why she had the potential to be bipolar. She also had a mother, my grandmother, who was a very tyrannical woman. And so uh, when my mother was in her 20s, these terrible symptoms of bipolar disorder uh, showed themselves, and because there was no lithium in those days, and really no one understood bipolar in those days, um, she was given psychoanalysis uh, rather than electroconvulsive shock therapy, and it didn't work. So she became more and more depressed and killed herself. My grandmother, who lived a great many years after that, but was a lifelong depressive, when when she became old and had heart problems, she decided that since her daughter had killed herself and since she had no one to really care about, she would kill herself with sleeping pills. Well, that accounts for, for three of the relatives. My mother's brother, <coughs> my uncle, um, was also bipolar, um, and again, it seems to me that was genetic, but he was younger and did get on lithium and uh, pretty much was stable um, until, um, who knows, maybe it was because his 
wife died, um, or maybe it was because uh, he just was tired of living and he, he killed himself. Maybe he went off drugs. And as for his wife, my aunt, who was not in the same um, bloodstream, bloodline, so she there was no genetic um, aspect to it, she had terminal cancer and decided that she couldn't live anymore. So then we come to my brother. Well, he had some of the same genetic loading that my mother and my uncle and my grandmother did. He was depressed almost all his life. In, in addition to having uh, the bad genes, he had a mother who abandoned him essentially when he was young um, by killing herself. And um, he never got psychotherapy uh, of any major sort, and he never took medication until late in his life. And he was a driven man, a, a high achiever. And he got more and more depressed as the years went by and um, realized and this was, I think, the most important thing that, that came out of writing the book, realized that no matter how much he achieved, he had two Pulitzer Prizes, many other awards. He was considered the journalist's journalist in New York, J. Anthony Lucas. No matter how much he achieved, it wouldn't bring his mother back, and it wouldn't make him feel loved. And uh, so when he killed himself, I suspect that was the end of the illusions. Um so there we are, and and so why didn't I follow suit? And I that think there the are five reasons, five that I can can put my finger on. One, I probably had somewhat different um, um, genetic makeup. Uh, even from the earliest age, I was known as a charming, um, um, happy-go-lucky uh, piece of sunshine, bit of sunshine. So uh, that wasn't the way the others in the family looked. So I think that was part of my lucky genetics. Uh, number two, um, I wanted to replace my mother, no doubt about that. And instead of looking for success, in the world at an early age I started to look for other mothers or other women and so I was eager to get married I was eager to fall in love and it just so happened I fell in love at the age of 25 or 24 with a woman who was fantastic and who made my uh, depression um, less awful and who was able to live with my depression as you know, Gail, living with people who are depressed or bipolar is a horrible, difficult endeavor. Yes, I and, and And Susan was able to live with me. We have two wonderful daughters, so there was something about that stable um, life and about knowing that part of what the world is about is um, family and that success in money or in um, accolades isn't all there is. There was something about that that, that enabled me to get through the most depressed times. Um, so uh, the third thing was I couldn't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I had to talk about these awful things and write about them. And part of that was being in therapy, endless therapy it seems to me, but lots of therapy. Every time I felt I needed help, I went and got therapy and talked about these things. And I talked about them at the dinner table, and I talked about them in conferences, and I talked about them to my friends, and people got tired of hearing about suicide and depression. But I just kept talking, and I think those four things were the most important things that, that have kept me alive. The fifth thing um, is just some kind of dumb luck. Um, a sense also that I couldn't do that to my family. And that somehow outweighed the desire to get rid of all the pain. And I think people who are depressed, uh, whether they're bipolar or, or not, um, are in pain. And the only thing they can think of is to get rid of it. I had to keep thinking of other things. It's a long-winded answer, Gail, but there no, it is. No, it's, 
It's a wonderful answer, and, and I'm sure there is more yet. Uh, I, regretfully, your beautiful Susan um, also died. Uh, how have you been doing since Susan? Well, it's a year and a half now, a year and five months. It's, um, it's not like any other pain. It's not depression by itself. It is, in some senses, worse than that. Uh, 47 years of companionship, uh, of, of um, shared experiences, shared jokes. Uh, I, I spoke to my eldest daughter today and told her that I'd miss Susan over the weekend because I was cooking up a storm and, and I did most of the cooking in household. She was a psychotherapist and used to come home late and I'd have the dinner on the table. And uh, sometimes I'd argue with her and say, why didn't you call? The food's cold. Or um, sometimes I'd say, you can't eat that. It's not good for you. But it was always a shared experience, and I really miss that. I miss the jokes. I miss the fact that she would um, um, tell me to take out the garbage even. You know, that, that, that this, this constant uh, friendship uh, that one has. And uh, I think the worst part about it, is is missing all those little things, not the big things, and the belief that somehow I wasn't a good enough husband, and that's um, that's something my new therapist has tried to um, get me to, to to rethink. But it's very hard when someone dies, as suddenly as Susan died, and, um, and you can't ask for forgiveness for the little things to to make those little things into big things. So it's, it's very, very difficult. Oh, my gosh. You you are truly, in, in the deepest sense of the word, a survivor. Kit, it's, it's quite amazing. Your your life is quite amazing. And, and I know that every moment of every moment you're missing Susan and, and your family. Uh, through the reading of the book, it came to light that you and Tony were very, very close. You had a, a, a two-sided relationship, I would think, as most brothers have, the I love you, I hate you syndrome. Um, am I correct in that? Oh, yes. Yeah, and and there's, a, there's an in-between side, too, and there was too much of that. And the in-between between love and hate is, I'm going to ignore you. Mm-hmm. And I think both of us were were responsible for that. We couldn't quite figure out what we wanted from the other and so very often we went for long periods of time without contact and and I think that that's very painful for, for families my two daughters uh, talk all the time and one's 38 one's 40 and there's no doubt that they will stay in touch and keep in touch I very often hear from one something that I told the other and wow. that's just wonderful wonderful to it know it is it is did you impart that to them, that indeed you must stay close, or somehow that they just grew up recognizing Well, so, uh, you know, they grew up with a love-hate relationship early on, but Susan was always on the phone to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, she just wouldn't let them forget that, that we were here. And I think eventually they just decided that they liked each other. <laughs> uh, how wonderful is that? <laughs> yeah, it's terrific. It sounds like it, it, the reading of, of your book was very poignant, your, uh, if, if I may back up just just a bit, you're grappling now with were you a good enough husband to Susan and the questions that lingered and must have been tearing you up inside about your own mother and were you in some way responsible for the loss of your mother uh, and how you write about that in the book. Yeah, that's, that's of course, for anyone who... <laughs> who hasn't gone through something like that and hasn't a wild imagination and hasn't had a childhood trauma, the idea that a six-year-old child could in any way be responsible for the death of his mother except, you know, a bad seed or a a kid who grabs a rifle or something must sound really bizarre. But apparently um, the relationship I had with my mother was such that I felt that I was indeed responsible for making her happy. Uh, and keeping her alive, and that when things went wrong, and all of a sudden she died, and no one told us how she died, um, I must—I came to the conclusion in my childish mind, in my childhood mind, 
said it was my fault. And that haunted me for, for decades, uh, not consciously, but unconsciously. And it really has taken a great deal of work to understand that in, in no way could I have been responsible for her death. But, you know, it's so absurd to, 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 to hear a six-year-old even think those thoughts that no one said to me, by the way, your mother died because she was ill, not because you had anything to do with it. And because they didn't, I assumed they did. Um, and I, I'm afraid there are a lot, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of, of kids like that who are out there after a divorce or a death or, or an accident. A lot of young kids who, who get the feeling that, well, it happened because they weren't good enough or did something wrong. And that certainly haunted me for, for many, many years. Well, from my perspective, I too am a psychotherapist. I believe that is normal. And as a mother who lost a daughter, I grapple with that very same thing. What mm. should I have done? What could I have done? And it will haunt me for the rest of my years. And frankly, since we're speaking very openly and frankly, it really doesn't matter to me what others um, say, what the other doctors, therapists, anyone will say to me, um, her mother. Yeah. What yeah. did I do? What did I do? What didn't I do? So if anyone can understand your heart, uh, I, I am that person. Mm. And I wish us both uh, peace with, with the, the grappling that we have to go through. And uh, why, why, Gail, is that natural? Why does that happen? I'm the son, you're the mother, but we both have the same uh, emotion. Why? I wish I understood the why. I, I have great learning. I, I have great understanding. I have great empathy. Uh, I have certainly, my husband and I have certainly spoken to all of Rebecca's doctors. We lived through her own bipolar illness with her for 30 years. She mm. died when she was 30. And yet, I, you know, you said you were, you were born a little Mr. Sunshine. So right. somewhere, somewhere along the line, uh, even in your young unconscious mind, you must have uh, come upon the idea that if you didn't smile, if you didn't laugh, if you didn't keep all the balls in the air, mommy wouldn't be happy. Yeah. Uh, and, and for me, my belief was uh, that I really needed to stay strong and healthy and mm -hmm. centered, very, very centered for my daughter, uh, or she wouldn't be able to go on. And mm. then when she chose not to continue her life, well, I, I think it's just inherent in this type of death. Yeah. What, what did I, perhaps it's different with other forms of death, but death by suicide leaves in its wake survivors who really need to take care of themselves in a, in a very different way than other survivors. Am mm -hmm. I making sense? Oh, yeah, you're making sense. It's horrible, but you're making sense. Yeah. sense out of the senses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I, am not, I had not been aware before reading this book of the one of your previous books about that very thing, surviving... Mm -hmm. Uh, after, um, oh gosh, I just had the page and now I've lost it. The Silent Grief, living, living in the Wake of Suicide, yeah. Yes, and, and how Bill, you quote Bill Moyers as having saved his soul after yep. reading that book. Yep. Um, while we're not really uh, interviewing you about that book, I think it, 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 it needs, we need to hear something about Silent Grief, living in the Wake of Suicide. Well, that was, yeah, it, it was, it was, um, it came out of a, a big depression I had uh, when I heard about a, a friend of mine. Uh, I was 50, he was 50, and he killed himself. Uh, apparently he was, uh, had schizophrenia, uh, and, and uh, he was also an alcoholic. And I heard about it uh, from a friend of mine, and uh, he had been very close to me as a kid. Um, I went into a deep depression. I said to my wife, what's going on here? Why am I depressed because Tom killed himself? I haven't seen him in, in 30 years. And she said, well, you ought to read up on that. So I went to the library at the, at the college where I was teaching at the time, and there was nothing on it. So I went to the medical library at that college. There was nothing on it. 
I reported this to Susan, and she said, oh, you have to write the book. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can't. She said, sure you can. Uh, and this was what we did, one of the things we did for each other when she wanted to become a, 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 a psychotherapist. I said, of course you can. When she wanted to become a painter, I said, of course you can. When I want to do one thing or other, she said, of course you can. So I started doing some interviews. And the long and short of it is that every interview that I did with a survivor of suicide, um, a family or friend or whatever, it turned out they shared many things. They were all different, and every person who died was different, but they shared many things, and it made uh, an interesting book because it revealed how much we have in common with other people who go through the same experience. And and they broke down into several kinds of, of, of reactions. One, uh, I'm responsible, which is what you and I have just been talking about. Two, the doctor is responsible, and I'll never go to a psychiatrist because they couldn't save my daughter or my mother or whatever. Uh, three, uh, people who become ill physically um, after the suicide, and and, and uh, doctors don't see that that's really a result of the trauma, uh, and, and other things. We call them bargains in the book, but they're not conscious bargains. Um, and uh, that's what twenty five years ago I wrote that book and i um and that was before my brother killed himself uh, and before my uncle killed himself um, and um I thought, well, I've done with suicide now, uh, apparently I hadn't had your brother read that book? He read the book and um sent me uh a note he he couldn't say anything um in person, because that's just not how he communicated feelings. And he said it was a brave book to write, and he honored me uh, for having done it, and that it had made him cry. Uh, but he still couldn't talk about um, death uh, and suicide. Um, and even having read the book, I don't think he understood how much um, our mother's death had affected him. I just don't think he got it. So he really closed down. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uttered. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, I did get him once uh, to, to go to a psychopharmacologist because he was very depressed, and uh, I was frightened for him, and I, I told him that if he didn't go uh, find someone, I would take him to a hospital, and, of course, that frightened him more. So he did go to a psychopharmacologist, and he started taking some medication, and it helped for a few years. But then I don't think he upped it when he needed to or, or recognized the danger signs. Um, mm-hmm. And he did marry. He him. married when he was 49, yeah. Mm-hmm. He had wanted um, to, to marry. He, uh, he, yes, he had always wanted to find the perfect woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, unfortunately, um, for many, many years, he thought there was a perfect woman. Mm-hmm. And... I know now that I, I, I think that that perfect woman was the reincarnation of his mother. Uh, finally, he realized that wasn't going to happen, and he found a, a woman he, he very much loved. But I'm sure somewhere in, in his heart he felt, yeah, but where's my mother? Or, and, and so the Pulitzer Prize and all that was supposed to, supposed to uh, satisfy him. You know, it's sad on two grounds. One is that we carry these illusions with us, that there is somehow a solution to a childhood problem. Uh, And two, he was an extremely uh, talented and and, uh, courageous journalist, uh, and so we lost two people when he died. We lost uh, uh, a boy with an illusion, and we lost a, a talented journalist. Yes. My goodness. Um, if, if it's all right with you, uh, I would like to touch upon the reality that after your mom died, uh, Dad uh, was unable to speak about her death. Um, is, is that correct? That I mean, uh, unable or unwilling, uh, uh, but... but um you know, as a kid, I was a very frightened kid, so I never pushed him as hard as I think I might have. And my brother didn't want to know the answers, so neither of us ever asked him about mother. Uh, and uh, 
Whether he didn't want to or was unable to, we never heard about uh, her death uh, for 10 years um, as the, the, the real cause. What were you told? Uh, you remember, he said, she was sick before you went away. I, they sent me off to camp after she was dead, and I think they told me she was ill and uh, did not want to go away to camp with my brother. Um, you know, and I imagine she had a cold. And then when I came back, you remember she was sick when you went away while she died. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And no one else dared to tell us what kind of sickness it was and that it wasn't a cold or pneumonia or and so that's the mystery that that never got didn't get you know revealed in for another ten years. And may I ask, at that ten year mark, what was the trigger that <laughs> finally? The well, trigger? it was uh, it was I was on my way up to um, to visit my grandmother, and my father came to the railroad station to see me off. I was now sixteen, and. Um, we were having a bite to eat before we went, and I was very upset. I'd just gotten a letter from a girlfriend uh, in uh, from England, and she had essentially was telling me that we were no longer uh, an item. And I, I, I told my father how upset I was by it. And, in, and, and he had met her. He said, well, you know, she looked like your mother. Mm. I said, no, she didn't. In fact, I still don't think she does. He pulled out a picture of mother from his wallet, a little colored photograph to Proved to me, uh, I'd never known he'd carry that around with him. And um, he then said, um, when I looked at the photograph and handed it back to him, he said, "You know, your mother killed herself." Just like that, he just just like that. And I said, I, I, I think I was able to, you know, breathe. I said, "Why?" He said, "She was sick." And I said, maybe the first thing I said was, no, I don't know. And he said, oh, I thought you knew, mm. thinking that my grandmother might have told me or that I might have defined it, anything other than him having to tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only other thing I could imagine to say was, was she there when I was a child? Mm-hmm. I meant physically. Mm-hmm. And he said, physically but not in any other way. And it was so distressing for both of us that I never talked about it with him again. And, 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 and God, I would have liked to. I really would have liked to ask him some questions, just to understand what the situation was, to see what he saw, to feel what he felt. To, but it never happened. Um, and my grandmother... And my grandmother would just burst into tears when I talked about it, so that was no good. So those questions remain unfulfilled, unanswered? Uh, Totally unanswered. All I can do is guess. I have some letters that my mother sent to my father, so I know one side of the conversation. There's, you know, there's some fictionalized uh, uh, autobiography my mother wrote, but again, it's one-sided, and... and who knows how much of it is true? I've put what I thought was true in the book. I spoke to my uncle about it once or twice. Um, and the rest is um, uh, as much as I can put together. And, and, and But I would like to know what my father um, felt when, when, when he was told that my mother killed herself. By the way, she was at her psychiatrist when she did it. She was outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um just left his office and so my father's in the city or not he's at home and he gets this phone call what happened what went through his mind what did he decide? how did he decide to come and send me off to a friend and then send me the you know all those things are are up in the air mm-hmm. mm. never to be resolved fully never never mm. um so it's i keep beautiful photograph uh, that you've placed in this book so lovingly at the beginning of chapter two maybe Schomburg on her wedding day yes what a magnificent magnificent photograph oh my gosh yeah the town itself is is a gossamer heaven where did you find the photos there are so many beautiful photographs throughout the book well that, that, that uh, the, 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 the luck there is that uh, while we didn't tell each other anything we kept letters and we kept photographs and first people who did that were were my uh 
grandmother and my uncle. Uh, Dad didn't keep many photographs, but my grandmother kept every letter she'd gotten from my mother. And uh, my father actually kept all the letters he'd gotten from my mother, though I didn't find about them out about them until he died. Um, and um, my grandmother, essentially, I got all her photographs. Um, and then some cousins had some other photographs. So uh, I'm a photographer, among other things, so the idea of keeping photographs uh, is kind of sacrosanct to me. Absolutely. So they all piled up in the armoire, and my kids would always say, when are you going to sort them out? And, of course, I, I never have. <laughs> so every I'll time do it. What? Now your children yeah. will do it. <laughs> well, I've told them they got to do it. But so you know, I would I would go looking for a photograph and go digging through these 19th or early 20th century photographs and come up with one I'd never seen before. So that's mm-hmm. how a lot of them got into the book. I just you know, my God, I said, look at that, my mother when she's 16. Who knew? You uh, know? They're beautiful, and in in the book itself. To see all of you, those yeah. beloved yeah. people you're writing about, it just makes it all the more real yeah. uh, and close to one's heart. My goodness. You know, I'm, I'm back, again, I'm backtracking a little bit. I was sent away to camp when I was six years old <laughs> to, oh. uh, to overnight camp with my older sister, who was uh, six years older than me. And the trauma that that has played with me, I'm going to be 65 in a few months, and I continue to tell the story of uh, how my parents put my sister and I on a train uh, mm. eight weeks away at overnight camp, and we came home to a baby sister. Ooh! So, <laughs> so I, assume I, that's why, I assume that's why you were sent away. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. There was no one to take care of us, and the good doctor thought it's best to get rid of the children. So mm. I, I can relate, although... You know, the ending of my story is a little different. I came home to a, a sister and to life. You came home to something that none of us should have to experience. Ever. Yeah, but the trauma of being sent away when you're not quite sure whether you're being sent away, and I can, I, you know, maybe you felt this too, uh, whether you're being sent away because you were a good child and deserve it or whether you're a bad child. <laughs> yes. You know? I, I agree. I, I would agree with that. And even to this day, I tell when I tell the story, and you remember when I was sent away and blah, blah, and, mm-hmm. you know, my family just walks away from me. Oh, no, here she goes again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, we yeah. do tell those stories often. <laughs> and I'm not really old enough. I'm, yeah. I'm least 60. I'm not really old enough to be in that category of of the um, – the the how how shall I say it the the uh, elderly um, a grandmother who doesn't yep. have her wits about her I do yeah. have my wits about me <laughs> and I still remember so and the re- only reason that I bring it up is not to tell my story but to emphasize your story yes. and the yes. extreme extreme abandonment that I don't know if that ever lifts. Well, I certainly don't think um, I will ever completely get over the uh, idea that people abandoned me, because they did. My father got tuberculosis a year after mother's death and and went away. We were sent away to school then. Um, You know, we were abandoned, not on purpose, but we were abandoned, and Mother's death was was certainly an abandonment. Um, when Susan died, uh, I had a very good friend who, who said to me about six months after that, he said, I think you're suffering because you think Susan abandoned you. She was the only one who didn't abandon you. And, and, and he was absolutely right. It was a stunning remark that is, we stayed together for 47 years. But her death uh, nonetheless becomes an abandonment. It's a recapitulation of... Of, of all the other losses. Um, so I don't think I'll ever lose the notion that I've been abandoned, and I don't think I'll ever completely lose the, the, the idea that I wasn't good enough, and that's the reason I was abandoned. I did something bad, and that's the reason. Um, but I'm a far cry from where I was because I've had all this good therapy. Uh, you know, I'm just a, I'm writing a book now about therapy, Gail. I'm writing oh, a book from the, from the point of view of the patient. I, I figure I, I've earned that. Uh, I've, I've done enough therapy and been to enough different kinds of therapists that 
I want to advise other people um, why it's a good thing to do and why should they should stick with it and um, how they can make some decisions about who to see. Um, because I really deeply, be- deeply believe in it. And my current therapist is a genius. Um, she's a woman in her 60s who has somehow uh, the empathy as well as the knowledge to understand these various dynamics and these various crazy stories we tell ourselves and not to let me get away with it. Just How marvelous. Yeah. I can't and wait the for one, the book to come out. Well, I can't either. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, my agent at the moment is still editing. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, but but the, the, the fact is that and we started this conversation about survivorship. At one point, about six months ago, I was uh, talking to my therapist and crying and saying how awful my life was. And and uh, with all the wonderful things I've had, there's still this dynamic of thinking, yeah, but if this hadn't happened and if that hadn't happened. And she said to me, I don't know how you survived your childhood. Mm. Now, no other therapist has ever said that to me. No one else has ever said that to me. They may say, it's wonderful that you survived, or what a survivor, or what a courageous person. But they've almost all said, yes, people go through terrible things. And inside I felt, no, this wasn't just a series of terrible things. This was god-awful. This was just terrible. No one should have to go through this. But I was a little guilty about feeling that way. Maybe I was feeling sorry for myself. And she came right out and said, oh, I have no idea how you survived. Mm-hmm. Boy, what a relief that was that someone else recognized yes. that what I'd gone through was horrendous. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I was no longer the only person who believed that I had gone through hell. Um, and uh, maybe other people can't uh, afford to realize that. It's very difficult to be empathic. Uh, you're a therapist, so you know what you have to do to stay on track with someone's feelings. Um, but I think you're either born with it or you're not. Uh-huh. I think that's something you develop along the way. I don't think they can teach you that in school. Yeah. Through the book. Yeah. It's there or it isn't. Yeah. In my opinion. It's only my opinion. Yeah. Well, I, I, that, may, that, that, that rings true for me. Susan was very empathic. She was a, a brilliant therapist. Uh, and I think she she felt uh, people's um, feelings mm-hmm. and and could get inside them uh, emotionally in a way that was just very useful for the therapist. Mm-hmm. And also exhausting for for Susan. Yeah, well, she came home and she didn't have their supper and then watched junk television. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. do that? Do you watch junk television? Well, I uh, yes, absolutely. And don't talk to me. I don't. I don't. <laughs> <have any choice. laughs> Don't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly don't talk to me about problems, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. one does need to, to learn how to how to nurture uh, yeah. oneself. But I, I to this day, I and I've been in the in the uh, therapeutic community for a very long time. I, you know, um, I'll tell you something, Kat, and and our listening audience. I, I this may be erased actually after I say it, but after I lost my Becky, um, I did uh, go into uh, psychi- under psychiatric care. It was mandatory, and I really had to. And yep. a phenomenal, phenomenal a doctor, phenomenal. I, I adore him to this day, and we have remained friends to this day five years later. But the truth of it is, because he, thank God for him, he could not relate. Those um, get over it palindromes, that, those, those words, oh, come on, mm-hmm. dead, let her go, mm-hmm. didn't work. It didn't work. Yep. And yep. I knew everything else that should be said and how to say it, and I should be able to write my own book. And finally, I, I had to part ways with him because my response was, my daughter has died. I am never going to feel happy. I, yep. I am never going to accept. I am never going to say, well, that's okay. I didn't have anything mm-hmm. to do with it, and I'm never mm-hmm. going to let go of her. So there's yeah. nothing more for me to do here. Yep. And in spite of the fact that as the book that you are now writing, I'm not trying to in any way negate 
the benefit of uh, good psychotherapy, uh, not in any way. But for some folk, and I'm one of them, um, I had reached a point where there was nothing more for us to to discuss. Yep. That was where I was, that's where I was going to stay, and that's where I am today. Yeah, no, I understand that. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, that, that makes it very difficult for spouses and other children and, and friends to understand that there are some things um, which which uh, no EMDR is going to take care of, which no uh, pill is going to take care of, which there are some things which sit with you forever. And um, you can work around them, uh, but uh, they don't go away. And um, um, that's hard to accept when you love someone and you want them to be happy. Uh, uh, Your spouse says to you, you know, I said to Susan, she had had a terrible childhood, I said to her, how do you get, how come you're such an upbeat, happy person who feels lucky to be alive every morning? And she said, I'm not going to let those bastards win, referring mm-hmm. to, to her, her childhood. Mm-hmm. And I said, boy, I wish I could do that. But you can't do it just because someone else does it or because you understand that that's what they do. I think, like empathy, you have to be born with the ability to uh, to not let the bastards win. And in my case, while they haven't won, they certainly are always there pecking away at the uh, mm-hmm. at the shell. Yeah, they keep trying. <laughs> yep, they keep trying. They keep reminding you. Uh, and and uh, I can't imagine what it's like to lose a child. I cannot. And... Uh, uh, I think you're amazing that you've been able to, to do everything you're doing. Um, well, you know, Tony, I'm going to turn that right back around to you, too, because I, I believe that for me what what is going through my head right now is that surviving is also paying it forward. You know that, yes. that little term that I recently learned? And look yep. what you've done, the books that you have written, the education that you are providing for so many people who are so desperately in need and what my little family has done in the establishment of Rebecca's Foundation and Rebecca's mm-hmm, Dream mm-hmm. and this podcast. If not for my daughter, you and I would not be talking right now. That's uh, if if That's not right. for what you have experienced in your life, we, we wouldn't be talking right now. Yeah. So uh, that's part of my vision and that, yes, this awful thing has happened and look what has come of it. Uh, look at these people who are being helped and saved every single day. For Bill Moyers to to write to you the way he did, you saved him, you, yep. how you helped him, oh my goodness, yep. that's taking yep. your tragedy and turning it into someone else's salvation. Yeah, and, and, and um, also my salvation. I mean, yeah. uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not a do-gooder uh, in the normal sense. Uh, if I do well, it's, it's because uh, it fits into my life uh, uh, style and life pattern. Uh, Susan was a do-gooder. I mean, you know, the number of, of dollars that went out of the house to charities here and the number of nieces we had living with us. And oh, so, but, you know, that was just who she was, a good-hearted giver. Um, so I've been lucky, and if I've helped others, it's because it's helped me to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. I don't, you know, I don't denigrate myself for for being no. that kind of a person. Uh, oh no, I feel the same way. That yeah. uh, my daughter's legacy has given me reason and purpose to yep. to continue yep. to move on. Oh my gosh, and and your family members, um, I know they're applauding you. Oh yes, they do, they mm-hmm. do. Uh, and and my daughters are are a great support team. You know, I, I never played football, but if I had, I'd want them on the sidelines. <laughs> Do you have grandchildren? I have one, uh, Jake. He's two and three quarters, and uh, uh-huh. I really like him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> good, <laughs> good kid. And what does he call you? Uh, uh, Grandpa. Grandpa. Yeah, okay. we, had, we, had, we had choices, and I said uh, Grandpa was fine by me. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> oh, so he is the light of your life. No, not quite. Not quite. Uh, I'm expecting when he plays chess that he will be, but uh, <laughs> uh, or speaks six languages. I mean, I have high standards. 
But he's a, he's start teaching him. <laughs> well, his, his oh. mother speaks three languages, so we'll, we'll you know. Oh, um, my gosh. Well, you yeah. settle for three. <laughs> I'll settle for three. Yeah, uh, I'm teaching um, him about I'm teaching him about music. I'm teaching him about Bach. He was in here, and I had some Bach on the other day, and he said, "What piece is that, or what song is that?" Oh my! Because his father's always playing music, but generally, you know, pop music or something, or children's music. Oh. I said Bach. Oh. And so at dinner that night, um, I said, "What did we listen to today?" And he, <laughs> his eyes didn't reflect. I said, "It began with a," and his eyes lit up, and he said. Fuck! Uh, I thought, that's glorious, what I want. <laughs> a glorious moment in time. <laughs> As our time is winding down, I want to ask you something. Um, first of all, to recommend the book Blue Jeans by Christopher Kit Lucas to everyone who is listening uh, and to all of those who um, are yet to be listeners on our, our podcast. A Memoir of Loss and Survival um, uh, forgive me, uh, Kit, for using the word again, but a courageous, uh, a courageous book, a uh, courageous story, and I know you kind of shy away from that, but it just may be the bottom line. Uh, what is it that you would like? Is there anything else that you would like to share with uh, our, our podcast audience and and other? Well, I don't really know. I don't know who the podcast audience is, but let's assume it's it's people who who are are in pain or are searching for answers. Yeah. Um, A, keep talking. I mean, I think the, 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 the primary thing is to keep talking about it and don't let anyone shut you up. Uh, B, if you feel you need help, then you do need help. Um, so don't be afraid to, to, to say, oh, the, you know, I'm not the one in pain. If you're in pain, uh, go get help. Um, and three, or C, I guess it is, um, keep, um, find something that gives you some reason to continue. Um, and it doesn't always have to be the thing that society thinks is the good thing. I mean, I've led some, you know, interesting paths in my life, and I haven't always done what people expected of me, but it's one of the things that's kept me alive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we're speaking about not only those who live with uh, a, a brain disorder, uh, but for those living with those who live with uh, yes. bipolar, depression, schizophrenia, what, whatever it may be. Uh, so it, it runs the whole gamut. Um, yes, and I, and I think the, the problem is that people who have a brain disorder whether it is, a, uh, is is from blue jeans or whether it's from something else, um, need all the help that any of us can give them to push them or point them in the right direction. But I, I feel so terrible when people blame themselves for not being able to save someone mm-hmm. that I want to add an extra uh, word for that, that... There's only so much we can do. We should do everything we can do, but there's only so much we can do to save people, um, whether they're in Africa or in our back, uh, you know, in our in our guest bedroom or in our mm-hmm. child's bedroom. And uh, I just I, I urge people to be kind to themselves. Yes, that's that's crucial because if not, then we really can't go on either. Right. Uh, Right. Do you? Um, I keep thinking of things I want to ask you, and what we've been touching on this a little bit, but that horrid, horrid word, stigma. Yeah. Enlighten us, help us, stigma. Well, I was I was um, at um, a conference or a luncheon in in L.A. the other day, well, four months ago now, I guess, called uh, Eliminate the Stigma or Extinguish mm-hmm. the Stigma. I can't remember. It's held every year by a, an organization out there whose name, of course, is because I am old enough to not remember him. <laughs> um, 74, going on 75. Oh, anyhow. congratulations. Um, and um, I, uh, I was stunned. This was about schizophrenia. And every year they have a conference about eliminating the stigma of some other um, illness. Um, it's an organization that's been around for 40 years or more. And I just, 
it's, it's a really upbeat uh, luncheon. Um, the food was good, the, the, the speakers were good, and there was a woman there who um, had been a uh, institutionalized schizophrenic for many years and who now is a uh, professor of law and psychology at USC because she got the right kind of help. And I yeah. just thought, boy, there's a story about any of us. Uh, if you're stigmatized and put away, as they did in the 18th and 19th century, um, if we don't talk about these things, if we don't look for the cures or the or the treatment, if we treat this as some kind of evil spirit within people, which is what a stigma is, or if we're afraid that we'll catch it. You know, I have cancer, and I've had it for 15 to 17 years, and I remember my brother when he did obituaries, he wasn't allowed to use the word cancer. People were afraid of catching cancer or yes. catching it from the word. Well, people are afraid of the word suicide. It, it frightens us. It, um, the Army is now dealing with that very fact, and they're, they're trying to get their, their uh, soldiers to talk about suicide. And uh, if they think someone's in trouble, to get them to a physician and to walk them over to that, that physician, not to say, well, you ought to get yourself some help. So the stigma... It does two things. One is it, it it gives us false protection, makes us feel as if, well, we're not going to get that because we're not talking about it or because those people are, are uh, have inherited the devil. And the second thing it does is, is, is prevent treatment and prevent cures. So stigma is just a, a grotesque uh, thing, and uh, that's why I talk about suicide, and that's why I use the word death instead of passed on, and uh, I just I don't use those words. No. They're euphemisms for what needs for horrible things, and we ought to say what the horrible things are. Yes, absolutely. We are now winding down. Please, um, Kit, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Words of wisdom. Um, oh, I have no words of wisdom. Um, words of wisdom: read the book and talk to people about uh, their pain. That's the best I can say. And that is the best. That is the best. I cannot thank you enough on behalf of Rebecca's Dream, the Rebecca Lynn Cutler Legacy of Life Foundation, on behalf of DBSA. Personally, I thank you very much for having this conversation with me. I truly feel honored, and I feel honored. Well, thank you, Gail, and and keep up your unbelievably good work. Talk to you later. Yes, thank you, Kit, so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.